praise you, Lord, for the satisfaction that we find in Christ. We know that it is an infinite satisfaction that we do not fully realize it or understand what has been given to us in our Savior. As we've sung these songs of hope and redemption, we praise you that we can come together as an assembly to magnify your name in song, to lift up our prayers, a petition to you to sound the word of God among the people of God. Lord, may we also lift one another up and encourage each other this day. And now as we come to consider more carefully the text of Scripture, I pray that by the instruction of the Spirit that you will move uniquely in this congregation today to strengthen us to understand your call upon our lives and to grow in faith. Bringing, we pray, to to Christ as Savior, those who do not know Him. Move by Your Spirit amongst us. We ask for the freedom of the Word of God to the hearts of Your people and to those that You are calling to Yourself. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Please be seated. You'll make your way to the first chapter of 1 Corinthians as we continue on with verse 10 today. And in light of the text before us, I just ask, are you at war with anyone right now? Do you desperately wish someone believed what you believed, saw things the way that you do, stood with you in solidarity on a position that they reject? Do you have relationships that were shattered in the past and there does not seem to be any hope for repair in this lifetime. We do not journey far in life before we encounter a world beset by division, disunity, quarreling, and outright war. Satan divided the first marriage, driving a wedge between Adam and Eve. Then Cain killed his brother Abel, and division, dissension, and factions mar relationships to our day. And yet we can rejoice and have this morning in song. We can rejoice that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most relationally unifying force on the planet. Coming to earth, taking on flesh, living a life of sinless obedience to the Father, the eternal Son of God willingly sacrificed His body in the place of everyone who trusts in His redemptive sacrifice and resurrection from the dead. By the saving death and justifying resurrection of Jesus, we are reconciled to God and to one another. Reconciled. The bridge completed between us by Christ. This reconciliation, this oneness and spiritual unity is not sustained by self-generated love which always falls short, falls apart. Rather, it is supplied by God who is love and flows through us to one another. It's a work not self-generated, but God-generated in our midst as He draws us together. And because God is one and loves us in Christ with an infinite love, that love then unites us as believers in Christ. Jew and Gentile. Young and old, rich and poor, men and women, weak and strong. 
In the gospel-centered church, God's love flows through his people, thus persistently weeding out division, disunity, and relational dysfunction in the body of Christ. This theme is at the heart of Paul's first corrective exhortation to the Corinthian church. An exhortation that starts here in chapter 1 and verse 10, and will carry forward in this very theme to chapter 4, verse 21. Simply said, the Corinthian church's life together was marked by division and disunity on some level, and Paul stressed that this was out of sync with the gospel. You're not bringing your life in line with what Christ has done to redeem you and to reconcile you to one another. So remember in verses 1 through 9, Paul rejoices in the sovereign work of God in saving them. They are sanctified in Jesus Christ. They are made holy in Christ, verse 2. They are called to be saints, verse 2. That is, holy ones, ones chosen out of the world for God. They were enriched in Christ, verse 5. They are not lacking in any gifts from God, verse 7. As they look to Christ's return, those whose hope is set there. This is one of those sad places in English translation where a word just doesn't get included. And we could then start verse 10, should, I would say, start verse 10 with the word but. It's there in the Greek text. Just doesn't get into English translations. He's saying this is true about you. This is true about you in Christ. This is true about you in Christ. But. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So, who they are in Christ, celebrated in the first nine verses, there is an, a difference in the way that they're living and what they're actually doing as they relate to one another. That gospel message is not finding itself in their relationships as it should. So in verses 10 through 16, Paul focuses on the divisions that mar their life together. And then in verse 17, he shifts the focus to the Corinthian church's disunity with him. It's very subtle. We have to understand what he's doing and what he's, what he's writing here. But that focus is then going to stretch through the end of chapter 4. So we have, first of all, a call to unity as a church in verse 10. Notice first that Paul addresses them as brothers. The term includes sisters, of course. This is an endearing term that stresses their shared adoption as God's children. We're in this together, people. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We are on the same team. We are family, he says in so many words. I appeal to you in this brotherly way, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, here invoking the name of Christ as an apostle, as one who speaks for Christ. And so he is saying, it is Jesus' will for you to be united, not divided, as a local church. You notice there in verse 10 that he calls them to agree, literally, that you all speak the same thing, that you have the same message. 
that there be no divisions. We could even use the word there, cliques. There'd be no cliques among you, that you would be united in mind and judgment. In some and in context, this is a call not to relate to one another by looking inside to find your identity and then opposing everyone who's not like you. Rather, it's a call to look up, to find our identity in Christ, and then to pursue a unity and a like-mindedness that is centered in Him. It is all about Jesus. And as it is about Him, as He is at the center of all that we are thinking, then that motivates how we relate to one another. Imagine a thousand violins. They're all assembled in this massive orchestra hall, and they decide they want to play together, but they realize they're all out of tune. How do they do it? How do they get in tune with one another? Well, the first two start to tune to each other, and then the third tune to those two, and they keep doing that. It just doesn't work. As all these violins are trying to tune to one another, they just can't ever get there to the shared sound. What is it gonna, how's it going to work? They all tune to the pitch pipe, to that one sound that tunes them all. And in a sense, that's Christ is like that pitch pipe that says, here's the sound. Here's the tune. Here's the right note. My sacrifice for your redemption is a unifying force, drawing us together in Christ. That's the pitch. Everybody tune to that. When we're tuning to our own notes, we don't ever line up. And there's nothing but disunity. Now, let's talk for a moment on this unity. He says that this is Christ's will, that you would agree, that you'd have one mind, there'd be no divisions among you, but that you'd be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. It's really clear, in some sense, what he's saying. But unity of mind, let us note, is not uniformity of thought. Unity of mind is not uniformity of thought. Unity does not mean every member of the church must agree on all things. That would conflict with this book itself, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 8, more clearly perhaps, Romans chapter 14. Paul counsels those who hold opposite positions about whether or not we should eat meat offered to idols. Not an issue we deal with, but they did. He doesn't say to those who refuse to eat meat, start eating meat, because the other side's right. And he doesn't say to those who eat meat, stop eating it, because the other side's right. His counsel is that it assumes they're going to go on disagreeing. There's matters of conscience, there's matters of identity, there's a lot of things to it, and there's a lot of text there that deals with it. But if it was uniformity of thought, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 makes no sense. He does not demand that those who felt it was wrong to eat meat should change their actions or demand that those who did eat should stop. It is naive, I think then, in application to think that any church can find full agreement in everything. The only way 
to achieve uniformity of thought is for someone to step forward and say, everyone must agree with me on everything. That's the formula for a cult. And there's cult leaders that master that very idea. You must all tune to me. I'm the pitch pipe. And we can do that and everyone will agree at all times. But the context reveals that Paul is pressing for a unity that is not oriented toward one person deciding what is everyone's going to agree with, but rather that is centered on unity that comes from the message of the gospel. He's calling them to calibrate every aspect of their lives to the redeeming work of Christ. If the central consideration is self, it will pull them toward disunity as who agrees with me becomes larger than what has Christ achieved for his people. Now this is not to downplay the significance of taking a position and believing something. Paul believed a lot of things. He makes that very clear, doesn't he? There are differences of opinion that believers will bring to the table, but the issue is are we tuning our strings to the pitch pipe? Is that what is clearly the case? That self is set aside, my opinions as they are self-serving are set aside, and it is what has Christ done and how has he united us? Now, Paul, what are you talking about? Why do you call us to such unity? There's a very interesting point here. The Corinthians, this this letter is oriented in part to questions that came from the Corinthians. You look at chapter 7 and verse 1, and that makes it very clear. They had sent him written questions that they want him to weigh in on, places where there was disagreement in the church and some difficulties And they have these questions they want to hear from. This was not one of their questions. (laughs) Unity was not one of the issues that they raised. Paul starts out with an issue they don't raise before he gets to the questions that they do raise. And so I think it evidences on some level that they were blind to themselves. But he's going to hit them with it. This church is divided, and this needs to change. So he starts the letter with a matter that they do not see as a need of correction, but he calls them to that unity that they must demonstrate in verse 10. And then secondly, he speaks of a report of divisions in the church. This is how he has that information. Verse 11, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So I've called you to unity, and it's like, why are you? This, that's not what we asked you about. Why are you saying that? Well, here it is. I've received a report from Chloe's people. We don't know anything more about Chloe. Uh, somehow, some people came from her in Corinth to Ephesus, where Paul is at, and makes this report known. Her people could be slaves, business partners, family members, whoever. Somebody connected to this household comes to Paul and says that there's quarreling among the believers there in Corinth. That word quarreling is found in Galatians 5 and verse 20 as one of the works of the flesh. These were individuals who were saying from a self-oriented place, I'm going to be at odds with people because I want my way. Because I'm going to argue my point against theirs. Quarreling gives vent 
to differing opinions in a way that is selfish, arrogant, demanding, or in some other way divisive. Quarreling feeds on rivalry, and it goes to war. What do you mean, Paul? Verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. We need to do something of a a little deeper dive into the culture of the day. And this will serve us through the series as far as we go into 1 Corinthians. But from a worldly perspective, verse 12, you could say this about it. They're just being good Corinthians. That's just just how their culture worked. In the Greco-Roman culture of the day, one of the national pastimes was for traveling orators to enter a town and to entertain listeners. Now these travelers would beat a path to Corinth, known as sophists or wisdom brokers. They would come and say, here's the philosophy of the day that will really win the day. This is what's really true. This is what's, what, what you should follow. And they spoke with great eloquence and rhetorical skills in an attempt to wow the crowds and silence their opponents. So it was how one spoke that was just as important as what one said, and the truth was often a casualty. Well, the common people, as these traveling speakers would come they would gather and it was entertainment and they would pick their guy over your guy and so these these debates and fights over who was the best philosopher was just a part of life in Corinth sometimes this was all in fun at other times it got very very serious now we don't live in that world do we Uh, but maybe you've seen I, I see this, I'll, I'll admit, on uh, football games during commercials. I can't, I gotta go somewhere <laughs> than sit and watch a commercial. So, have, have you ever been on, on uh, public television and you see these economists speak or a philosopher of some sort or some life coach? And they've got kind of the way that life works and they, you know, they're on a platform kind of like a pastor and <laughs> there's people there that are watching and they they kind of say here's how life have you ever seen something like that imagine that was your only entertainment that's the only thing that ever came on a tv screen that was it well we can start to think from that perspective of sort of how they looked at this like this was their entertainment so they're going to fight about it They're going to argue. They're going to quarrel about it. They're going to say, this is the better speaker. No, this is the better speaker. This person's smarter. This person has a better philosophy, the better way. That was their life. That's how they lived in that culture. The Corinthian church was in that world. The problem was that a lot of that world was in the Corinthian church. And Paul is saying, you are not calibrating to the pitch pipe. It's not the gospel that's uniting you, not the work that Christ is doing in you to draw you together. That's not what's going on. You're picking your teacher, just like every other Corinthian would do. But now it's Christian teachers. And so there were some in the church that were saying, yeah, our guy, our guy's Paul. He's the smarter one. I'm guessing here, but something like that. Or our guy's Apollos. Wow, can that guy speak. Our guy is Cephas, maybe visited Corinth, 
somehow was known to them. We don't really know any connections there, but Cephas is, is, is Peter. And others are saying, I, I, can't, I just can't see them any other way than sticking their chest out and beating it and saying, ours is Christ. <laughs> or maybe they were just disgusted and said, we're tired of all you people. We're Jesus people. That's what was going on, and it fit very well with their culture. And this was all tracking in exactly the opposite direction of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the problem Paul sees. Parallels today, we could talk about it for a long time. It'd be a good day for a home group to talk through possible parallels. But I certainly see one where church members today use social media in the context of the church in the way that the world uses it. We get on social media in this world, in this culture, to say things you'd never say to somebody face-to-face. To vent anger, to ridicule, to spew half-truths of slander, damaging another person, and not even hardly feeling it because it's just, you know, just typing it out. And then to see Christians taking that same approach and trashing other people in a way they'd never do face-to-face. Might be an example of similarities, of bringing the culture into the church in a way that harms the gospel. Well, back to Corinth, the church had various, these various cliques centered around their favorite teachers. And one's favorite speaker was influenced in large part by who's smartest, who's most elegant, who's most entertaining. How do you think Paul fares in that? Well, there's a group that says, we get it. Paul's the guy. He's our guy. But think about it. This orientation was driving a wedge between the Apostle Paul and many of the Corinthians. I think even the ones that said he was their guy. They valued what? In the culture of the day, as they bring this into the church, they valued big, bold, confident, eloquent, entertaining, triumphant, brilliant speeches. What did Paul say? I came to you in weakness. And what's he preaching? A crucified Savior. And he's preaching that crucified Savior without the rhetorical tricks of the sophists. And it seems a good percentage then of these believers were dismissing Paul, not hearing the true doctrine that he taught. And so back to these factions, these divisions, these cliques and quarrels were informing how members related to one another. This was all wrong, and there's a reason why we find in 1 Corinthians the great chapter on love. Chapter 13. There was that group who said, Paul's our guy. Paul said, Paul's not impressed with this at all, is he? No joy to him. There were others who said, Apollos is our guy. From all that we know of Apollos, he spoke with great eloquence, with great rhetorical ability. Nothing wrong with that. But it was because of the way that he spoke, it seems, that a group gathered around him. And then the other, the Apostle Peter. Now what's interesting here is that in the rest of the book, Paul never says there's there's false doctrine here. It's not like these groups were spewing some sort of false doctrine because of the person they related to. In fact, Apollos and Paul and Peter were all on the same page. They were orthodox teachers of the truth of Jesus Christ. It wasn't about the leaders that was the problem. It was about the Corinthians relating to those leaders in a wrong way. 
And even that group that said, I follow Christ, obviously it's good to follow Christ. But those who claim Christ in this way were part of the problem. Whatever drew them together, it's enough for us to know that Paul was not impressed with their devotion to the Lord. They formed a Christ clique, and that was not Christ-like. So Paul calls the members to unity in verse 10. In verses 11 and 12, he explains what he's talking about and how he's received this information. Now he reasons with them concerning the folly of division in the church. Verse 13, this is foolishness. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Verse 14, on that point, I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Is Christ divided? I mean, really? You're going to treat Christ as just one teacher among the others? Is he not the Lord of us all? How can you pit Christ against Cephas and Apollos on level ground? What are you doing? Tune to the pipe. Baptized in the name of Paul, apparently who baptized you? They were making something out of this. When you stood in the waters of baptism, Paul says, to publicly confess your conversion and allegiance to Christ, were you baptized into any name other than Christ's? Paul expands on that ridiculous thought in verses 14 to 17. He rejoices that providentially he did not baptize many of the Corinthian converts during his first visit there. And while not his main point, these verses do indicate certainly that baptism does not save one from sin, don't they? I didn't even come to... I don't know. I'm glad I didn't baptize anybody. Can you imagine an evangelist saying, I'm glad nobody was led to Christ? No, it, it, it's, it's important. Baptism is very important. It's following Jesus' command. Paul is not saying baptism is not important, but it doesn't save. It's a public declaration that one has turned from sin to embrace Christ as Savior and that one has been baptized by the Holy Spirit. So that you are baptized is important. Who baptized you is a minor issue. And that's an issue that's divided Christians through history, that very point. So we don't want to minimize it too far. Like It makes no difference who baptizes you. It makes some difference. But in the context here, it's irrelevant. You weren't baptized in my name. I didn't even baptize you. Except for these people that I keep remembering. (laughs) I, I love that part. It's like, yeah, the guy was human. This is good. The folly of divisions in the church... It's about Christ crucified and risen. That's the pitch pipe. That's the tune, how we are to tune our church. So the key to unity then comes in verse 17 in seed form, which will be developed later. There's there's some subtlety here, and we need to stop and really concentrate on what he's saying. So in light of all of this call to unity... He says, now here's the rational. That's the irrational, is to divide Christ, to say that I'm somehow special over others or others special over me. It's not what it's about. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, 
but to preach the gospel. Now, notice the content of the message. To preach the good news of Jesus crucified and risen. But it's also how it's done. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the gospel of Christ be emptied of its power. We could say it this way, it's just straight up gospel. It's not embellished with the themes of the day that impress Corinthians or that impress people from Minnesota. It's the straight up revelation of what Christ has done. That's what I preached. Some of you, now this is the subtlety of it. He doesn't state this here, but it's going to come out as he continues the letter. Some of you reject my teaching on some level because I do not speak with the studied eloquence of others. I mean, this was a performance on the part of the sophists. I don't perform like that, and so you dismiss the message of the gospel. But you must understand, if I emphasize style, and if I preach the word as a performance, I would drain the gospel of its power by focusing on the ingenuity of man. In some weird way, you're trying to celebrate that. Apollos, Cephas, Paul, Christ. That would empty the gospel of its power. And I didn't preach like that. I did not do that when I ministered the gospel to you. And you should rejoice that I did not. So get this, Paul is saying. The power of the gospel is not in me or in any other teacher. It is in the power of the Spirit to illumine the faithful message and in the power of the Son to redeem those who trust in that message. The message of the cross unifies those who truly believe it. It breaks down cliques. It squelches quarreling. It does not create cliques and perpetuate war. The wars going on in your church are an evidence that you're not tuning to the gospel. So Paul feared losing the gospel to two enemies, style and performance. I gotta think he would recoil at some of the most popular preachers in our land and what takes place under style and performance. I care not to Name any specific names. We can just talk about it generally here. But you can find it and see it and watch it if you can stomach it. But popular preachers sporting $1,000 t-shirts and tens of thousands of dollars of jewelry and sneakers worth thousands of dollars and hoodies worth $15,000 or more. I don't even know how you do that. I don't know if it's laced with gold or what. Some of these trendy Speakers are so much about style, they're wearing $50,000 worth of clothes that look like they could be worn to a picnic. But it's 50 grand. That's all about style. That's look at me, look at my image, be impressed 
with what you see. Thankfully, this church has no problem with that. You can't be impressed with what you see. <laughs> that dumpy old guy up here, it makes that real simple. And, and I'm not jealous. I pity them. They're lost in style and performance. Studied performance in the pulpit, preaching perfectly scripted ways to impress all, entertain most, and offend none. Paul, in part, he's not living in our day. His situation is different, but he is saying, do not be impressed by style and performance. Talk about the message. Is it accurate to the truth that God has revealed? So a skewing style and performance. As Paul's saying, I am not going to add up here, people. But what's dangerous is not that I'm rejected. What's dangerous is that by dismissing me because I don't perform rightly, you're going to dismiss the truth. And that's the tragedy. He never wanted to compromise that power, nor should they. As Thomas Schreiner puts it, if the medium features the brilliance and the craft of human beings, it subverts the message of the gospel that humbles human beings and reveals to them their spiritual poverty. The speaker can serve the congregation, or the speaker can hide the gospel by drawing attention to self. Entertainment does not foster repentance. And the bloody, torturous sacrifice of Christ on a Roman cross is the opposite of stylish. It's the ultimate humiliation. And those who will follow Christ do what? Take up your cross. That's not stylish. Charles Purgeon said in one sermon, one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. This was indeed there one of the pressing problems of the Corinthian church. This letter does not indicate that the Corinthians were embracing any particular False teaching, there are some places of correction along those lines, but it wasn't like they had tapped into some false teachers and were headed in an opposite direction of the gospel. But the divisions seem to be more reflective of a worldly culture that prized cliques and debates and quarreling style and performance. What Paul will stress and what we must take to heart is that the answer to their disunity was to embrace their identity in Christ and to calibrate their lives to the unifying, reconciling love of Christ in their lives. Your fellow church members, Paul would say, are individuals for whom Jesus died. Relate to them as if that's the case. Jesus laid down his life for that person with whom you disagree. Treat that person that way. The unifying person of Christ. Spiritual maturity then leads to unity and love between church members. It does not lead to uniformity of thought and opinion. 
always. Well, undoubtedly, spiritual maturity is going to lead us to see a lot of things the same way. But it's not that uniformity that we're aiming at. Spiritual immaturity spawns divisions and dissensions as members operate in the interest of self, not in the interest of Christ's cause. You must agree with me. I am offended because you do not. I will join with others against your people because you're wrong and I'm right. That's spiritual immaturity. That's what it drives. That's what it's at its heart. If Christ's agenda reigns supreme in our church, we will practice then things that reconcile. Confession, forgiveness, reconciliation, love. And the result will be a precious unity by the grace of God. But if self is at the center of our affections, not Christ, then we will pursue friendship with those who like us and are like us and who like what we like. They're like us, and like us, and like what we like. That's my people. Isn't it a joy to say, no, my people are a mess, just like I am. We disagree on all kinds of things. We can't figure out what Jesus thinks. I say this to Beth and others too, but especially to her over and over, I wish I knew what Jesus thought. I don't know what he thinks about this, that, and the other thing, and you don't either. Even though we may be utterly convinced we think we know, so often we don't. We're a mess. It's a troubled world. Division is going to be part of our experience. But when Christ is at the center and we are working from that identity, love flows from the Lord to one another such that we build each other up, hold each other in love, and are unified in a divided world. May the Lord of the harvest enable us to shine that light widely and to know the joy of doing so in union with Christ and in fellowship with one another. It takes work. We fail. We've got to continue to strive. But let us put Christ where He belongs in the church. He's the head. Everything flows from what He has done for His people. Let's pray. Lord, we're not so foolish as to think that we stand before you in prayer as sinless, as individuals who need no change or development or growth. How much like our world we act at times as your people. like heat-seeking missiles to find people who are like us and like us and like what we like. Help us to love the unlovely. Help us to be at peace and to pursue reconciliation with those with whom we disagree legitimately. Help us, I pray, to set aside the warring heart that loves to create cliques and factions and divisions and help us as an otherworldly people filled with the Spirit of God to pursue a unity this world can't even understand. I pray that every one of us in the quiet of our heart would commit ourselves as believers to treating every believer as one for whom Christ died. As treating every unbeliever as one made in the image of God,
and one who is called to embrace the gospel. Help us to this end. We are so filled with ourselves and so easily emptied of love. May the love of Christ flow through us. Guide us to this end. Bless us to this end as an assembly we pray. Do a work of conviction, repentance, restoration, and bridge building in each of our hearts. Direct us forward. And Lord, I pray for those who know not Christ, that they would see that Jesus is the great reconciler, the one that leads to the Father. And may they put their faith and their trust in this good news that is to be at the heart of the church and begins with the individual heart turning in repentant faith to trust Jesus crucified and risen. Do that work among us, we pray, for the glory of your name. And we thank you for the rebuke, for the encouragement, for the edification of this call to unity in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.